preach here and you sit here, but hopefully you do more than just sit here. And that's uh, one opportunity for you to check out one of the things they always say about Midland Free when you talk to anyone is, boy, they have great children's programs. And like, and the preacher, you know, it's all right, but the children's programs, there's where it's at, you know. And don't worry about his jokes, you'll get used to it. <laughs> that's the last thing. Welcome here. Uh, we're going through the book of 1 Samuel this summer, and what that means is I believe in the Bible, I hope you believe in the Bible, and it's God's word and a big deal. So we follow it, and we believe it, and we try to live it. This uh, sermon series is, in particular covers the life of David. If you saw that graphic in there, even if you've never been to church before, you've probably heard about some guy named David and his friend, or not so friendly, uh, giant Goliath. And what's interesting about that story is everyone thinks about David and they go, oh, David and Goliath, I know that story, right? Little guy kills a big guy, isn't that cool? You and your life, me and my life, woohoo, here we go. But the reality is, in, in a lot of ways, as I, I pursue this narrative or this storyline, as a very small piece of David's life. And it's a small section of this story. It's really not the focus. In fact, it's just the warm-up. This is like the bullpen on the sideline, the thing that starts to show people that this guy might be something special or a little bit different, but it's not the emphasis. If the whole story was, here's a story of a hero, woohoo, let's look at him, no big deal. But in reality, what this thing is, is actually, here's a story that points to a greater hero. Woohoo, look at him. Here is a big deal. Entirely different. When you think David, please don't think David and Goliath. Think Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming king. So here we go today, and I want to review uh, just a few of those because, I mean, I had vacation last week, and I'm like, no, where were we? So if the guy preaching doesn't remember all the sermons, I'm guessing you don't either. But here's a quick little review to start off, and just to say, this is kind of where we're at and how we move things along. This is where we've landed and now, therefore, this is where we're going. So if, if you were here for our June 25th, the first sermon, uh, that sermon was about, oh, this is going to embarrass me, but let me just ask, does anybody know? Does anybody know what the first sermon we talked about, David's anointing? <laughs> exactly right. I can do charades all day. We'll see. David's anointing, and it wasn't just David's anointing, but it was David's anointing and our anointing as well. That's the thing. David was anointed. Uh, big deal if it just happened then, but actually it happens now too. David was anointed with oil. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that oil, it, it rubs in and it soaks up and it's there for a while, but the Holy Spirit, man, he's in you forever and you can't get rid of him and he won't let you go. It's so much better. So you just like David's oil empowered David. It strengthened him. It healed him. It served as a medicinal bond, bond that soothed his wounds, that cleansed him. So too, your anointing, your Holy Spirit, that soaks into you like oil, heals, soothes, invigorates, and empowers you for service. So just like David was anointed, you're anointed. There's one sermon. Why couldn't you do it that short that Sunday? I, I don't know. <laughs> Everything's better in hindsight, let me tell you. It just works that way. So there's one. The next one was the battle of the gods. Now, what is that one actually traditionally known as? 
David and Goliath, exactly right. Because we said it's not David and Goliath, really. It's Yahweh versus Dagon. That's exactly right. Good job. Yahweh versus Dagon, the Philistine God. It's really showing you, even though there's physical parameters, you know, David's like this, Goliath's like this. God is actually, everybody do it now, ready? God is like this. There you go. God is much bigger. You just raised your hands in church. What do you know? Look at that. Gotcha. All right. All right. So the battle of the gods shows us that Yahweh always wins. And therefore, if you are on Yahweh's team, you win. So you can be like that little kid jumping up and down on the sideline going, yeah, 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 we're going to kill him. We're going to crush him. We got Yahweh on our team because I'm like this, but Goliath's like this, but God is like this. So we're going to win. There's number two, battle of the God. Number three was, I would rename it now. I always come up with better names like two or three weeks before. The publication people don't like me for this, but I'm like, now I got it. I would call it confidence in providence. And really what we saw in that sermon was just that the Lord God was something David. The Lord God was what? With David, yeah. And then when he's with him, David wins. And so David could trust God and everyone around him saw, hey, there's something different about this guy. Every team... I throw a spear at him at point-blank range. The spear goes like this, and all of a sudden goes like this. And I can't pin him to the wall no matter how hard I try. Literally, I can't pin him to the wall. And everyone begins to realize that God is with David, and therefore David has success in all that he does. So we got the anointing, the battle of the gods, confidence and providence, and then this fugitive series starts out where even though he's been anointed, even though he's promised the throne... Even though God is with him, even though he's killing giants, he's still suffering, struggling, and on the run. Just because God comes to you and anoints you doesn't mean your life is easy and the red carpet rolls out and everything goes great from then on out. Woohoo! Now we're in. <laughs> I'm plugged in perfectly. I am the perfect piece that fits in this cog, and all of a sudden the wheels are just humdinging. No. Instead, David is God's anointed. David is man after God's own heart. David is chosen. David's killed Goliath, and now David's running for his life. <laughs> his life stinks. Everybody hates him, and everyone's trying to kill him. You may have felt that way. That was actually true for him <laughs> all the time. He's running. And we see this play out in a couple of different sermons. I did one, then Pastor David did the other. Um, and in the first one, we talked about David ran, and he ran to two different people and it showed that David could run to a what? Does anyone remember? David ran to his his name was Samuel. What was his office? Prophet. And then he ran to another guy which was a priest and David was the king and therefore David when he ran ran to his prophet, priest and as a king. And when we run, where do we run? To our prophet, priest, and king, i.e., everybody, Jesus. There we go. So that's the way this thing is moving. Last week, Pastor David shows us that um, when David is trusting in God's justice and timing, he doesn't take matters into his own hand, but he allows God to do his work, and therefore God does it better than we do. So now we're picking up on that after a few attempts on David's life. He's still on the run think your bulletin might say fugitive part three um, that's just sort of the like this is what's happening but now I have a better title in my mind 
as of this morning, which I will tell you is uh, the question to Endor or Abiathar. That's what I would call it today. So you can just write that down. It's not in your bulletin. I'll explain it in a minute. But if I would retitle this, I would call it to Endor or to Abiathar. So the way um, we're going to uh, move forward, you're seeing a slide here. I just want to clear things up for the Star Wars fans. They're like, oh, we got this figured out. This is the forest moon of Endor where the shield generator to the Death Star was and the Battle of the Ewoks took place. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry. That's not it. That's next Sunday. No. <laughs> this is a different Endor. This one has a hyphen in it. That's the difference. If you look it up, you'll see. And you can actually, what's really cool, someday I thought it'd be fun we come here on a Friday night or something. I can show you pictures of all these places. We're talking about Ziklag and Endor and yada yada. And you're like, huh? Well, you can go to Jerusalem and visit these. These are real. You can find the valley where David fought Goliath and the brook from which he picked up the stones. You can look at these. I can show you all of these pictures. So anyways, but not today. Because we have 32 minutes and 43 seconds left. <laughs> all right. You didn't know there was a clock back there. <laughs> Shh. Don't tell the preacher. <laughs> It's in big, bold. It starts flashing in a little bit here. So here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 26. You don't even have to turn there yet because I'm going to speed through it. But what's happening is uh, the first one, this is David in a cave. Pastor David talked about this. He's running for his life. Saul comes in. He doesn't kill Saul. That was cool. And we would call this one sort of the spear and the, uh, or no, this is the rob robe in the cave. So at this point, he cuts off the robe. At another point, he sneaks into camp and steals the spear that's right next to Saul's head and the drinking bucket of water as well. So he got the spear and the bucket or the robe in the cave. And now chapter 27, David's on the run and there's a lot of stuff that's going on that doesn't look so good. You know, Samuel, the prophet he fled to originally is dead. He died of old age, so that friend's gone. The priest that he hung out with at Nob, Saul learned about that, and he went and killed them. So basically, everybody around David is dying, and Saul's doing it on purpose. If he could just catch up with David, he'd kill him too, but he can't, so he might as well kill anyone who talks to him. <laughs> this is not a good spot. This is a very dark scene. How guilty David must have felt. Hey, I stopped here and got food, and then all of a sudden Saul came and killed the people who gave me food. Ugh. Yeah, he has to believe and trust in God's sovereignty and God's power that he really is the anointed one and God will accomplish what he does. And he doesn't turn around and go back and try to kill Saul, even though Saul killed 85 priests and their wives and their children just because they gave David a little extra bread. He isn't hunted. He is in a bad spot. He is running for his life. Things are getting very, very dark. And so what I'll do in the next few moments, this is the structure of today's sermon. Um, we will sort of paint that. I did the review and recap, so you already got that. Then we'll paint that dark scene and show you just how dark it was in a you know, PG version. And then... We will show you today's chapter, which will be 1 Samuel 30, uh, which is the rescue. And then from that, I'll focus in on this theme. I'll say that the theme for today 
is basically that we trust God, or in other words, trust when trouble comes. This is kind of the story of David's life, and I'll show you a verse that says that. Trouble comes, guaranteed. <laughs> Doesn't matter who you are, you're Jesus himself. Trouble comes. Trouble comes, so tr what do you do? Trust God. Well, what does it mean, trust, pastor? Because trust, that's like, woohoo, <laughs> nice. <laughs> trust, what do you mean, trust? Trouble will come, so trust God. What do you trust? You trust that God is steering the ship regardless of the route. You need to trust that God is steering the ship regardless of the route. So yeah, you can mess things up, but God is still going to send the storm that's going to blow you back on course. <laughs> and you can try to turn to the left, and if he wants you to go to the right, all of a sudden the winds are going to go, whoop, <laughs> and you can't go left anymore. Trust that God is steering the ship regardless of the course, and then there are two things in that that's really significant. You'll see David doing that today. Number one, you believe that God will punish the wicked. That's what it means for God to steer the ship. That justice will come. That God will do the right thing. He will punish the wicked. He will vindicate the righteous. That's a promise and a guarantee based on God's unlimited knowledge, unlimited power, and unlimited control. He will enforce justice. It doesn't matter what happened, who saw it, if they get away, or anything else. It will happen. God will punish the wicked and he will reward the righteous. That's going to happen. So these three things are really what you want to focus in on today. And I think you'll see them as we follow this or chart our course. <laughs> that was one of my jokes. Chart, steer, ship. All right, good. All right, wake up. Good morning. First Samuel chapter 28 Here's the dark scene that I want to bring you into so you can see what David's life is like. Here's the foil or the other character by which you get a better view of David to look at the opposite dark, deadly contrast of the good and the light. So here is Saul. And what happens is as David's life is going up, Saul's life is going down. So they're just kind of they're intersecting like that. You know, or something like that. Saul's going down, David's going up, and they just cross paths like that. This is how Saul is going down. It says this in 1 Samuel 28. In those days, the Philistines, that's the traditional enemy of the Israelites, gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Now Samuel had died, and all of Israel had mourned for him. And buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul put the mediums and necromancers out of the lands. The, the sorcerers, the witches, all those bad things. Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shuman, Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they camped at Gilboa. You can look that up on the internet. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, as he always was, he was afraid. His heart greatly trembled. This is Saul. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, as God had rejected him, so he's no longer speaking to him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So Saul said, aha, I'll find my own solution. If God won't help, I'll figure it out. 
Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. There's your Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. It's dark. It's a very dark scene. We're going to talk to a witch. And what better time to talk to a witch than at night? This is the scene in the movie where the rain is coming down and the lightning and thunder is going and the person's hustling through the streets and they knock on the little dark door. Someone peeks out. Where is it? You know, come on in. <laughs> you know. This is the dark scene. It's scary. I just used humor and made you laugh. That wasn't what I wanted to do. It's bad. This is the bad spot in the movie where you're looking at Saul and you're going, oh, what in the world is going on? Now contrast that. Whoop. Camera angles pan and switch to the next scene. What do you see? 1 Samuel 29. Um, that Philistines are assembled to attack Israel, as we saw. Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Now then, rise when? At night? No. Early in the morning with the bright light of day. And the beautiful sun will shine upon the just. With the servants of the Lord your God who came with you, start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. Go with the light, man, not with the dark. And David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines weren't there. They went up to Jezreel. Now what's happening here is this, is basically Achish is a king uh, that David was staying with when he was running from Saul. And uh, David wanted to help this guy, but this guy's generals wouldn't let him. And so the king had to send him home. You can read about that. There's more to it than that. But there's the short thing. So David's going home. And remember, David's been on the run, his, the run for his life. You know, Saul's trying to kill him. He's got no food. He's got no friends. Few people have gathered around him, but they're a bunch of weirdos. And so here is David, really at his wit's end. He's been away for a long time, and now he's coming home. Now, maybe you've never experienced that, but... Perhaps some of you, maybe, just maybe, have gone camping this summer. Anybody gone for a little trip? <laughs> yeah, okay. And when you go for the trip, you're all excited. You're like, woohoo, here we go, we're camping, right? And you get out there, and the first night you're rolling around, and the birds are chirping, mosquitoes are biting, and you're not sleeping, and you get up early. And after about a week of that, you're like, I'm ready to go home, right? <laughs> I want to sleep in my bed and take a shower in my place and be with my family and my wife where it's nice and comfy and cool, no more hot sweating it out at camp or whatever. I'm at home. And I imagine if we feel like that after a week of camping and our luxurious campers and yada yada, imagine how he felt staying in a cave. And he's trying to survive living off the land, no baths, no showers, no deodorant, no soap, no shaving, nothing like that. And he's going home and he's expecting... I'm going to come out to my city, and my wife's running out to greet me. She's like, David, so glad you're home. 
and she's going to give me a big old hug and kiss, and there's going to be hot food just cooking over the fire, and my kids are going to run up and wrap themselves around my legs and be like, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And it's going to be great. 1 Samuel 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, that's his home, the Amalekites, uh-oh, those are the terrorists, they had made a raid against the Negev, against Ziklag. They had overcome the city and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were with it, both small and great. This is a scene in Russell Crowe's Gladiator. He gets back from fighting. All of a sudden, his house is black and his family is destroyed. And it's not just there. It's not just David. But it's 600 other guys. Here's the tragedy of Job multiplied 600 times. (laughs) This is not a good spot. Any guy in their right mind returns home and finds it burned and their family gone is in a bad place. And here's David. Now remember who David's been fighting. First, he he was the enemy of his brothers. Then he had to fight Goliath. And then he had to have conflict in the palace with Saul. And now, then he's fighting the Philistines and and then he's making raids and now Saul's chasing him again. And then he goes home, and the Amalekites have attacked his house. Now, the Amalekites are basically these terrorist-type people who don't really attack out in the open, but they wait till you go away, and all the strong men are gone, and then they come in and kill your women and children and take your stuff, because they're so nice like that. (laughs) This is what they do. They're jackals. They're wolves. They're predators. They're yucky stuff that the Bible always portrays as against God and against his people. David comes back and he found the Amalekites have been here. And all of his men who were loyal to him nearly to the point of death are all of a sudden like, David? Whose fault is this? You told us to go get these guys and leave your wives at home. We obeyed you. We came back. What happened to our wives? You let an Amalekite take my wife and my children? And you can only imagine what happened to those women. It's going through their minds right then. Add to that the insult of the children as well. Holy smokes, these guys are not happy. They are beside themselves. They don't know what else to do. They bawl and cry and scream. And all of a sudden, they got to do something. Why not kill him? That's what they do. Now, everybody wants to kill David. Everybody. Verse 3 says, And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. And David and the people were with them, raised their voices and wept till they had no more strength. David's two wives had been taken captive. Their names, Ananoam of Jezreel and Abigail. And David, verse 6 was greatly distressed. Well, yeah. And this verse tells us, for the people, that's guys who were with him, spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in their soul, each for his sons and daughters. 
They're ready to kill him. Uh, he's going down. We lost our families. You, it's your fault. <laughs> You're going to pay. But David what? Strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. That is huge. You know, this is not I got a bad score on my exam. This is not my business deal didn't go through. This is not my job's at stake. But this is my wife and children have been taken. My home is burned. And my best friends are about to kill me. <laughs> this is a bad day. <laughs> this is a really, really bad day. And at that very moment, David turns and looks and decides to strengthen himself in God. This is the huge contrast between David and Saul. Really, as I, I look at that verse, I can't help but think that's the story of his life. Read the Psalms. And this guy is in trouble all the time. One moment it's a giant, next it's the king, next it's his son. Who doesn't want to kill him? But at every point, David is not looking to himself or somebody else, but instead he's looking to God. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. So here is David looking to God. Lion, bear, Goliath, Saul, Philistines, Amalekites, his own men. Where does David turn? To Endor? No, not to the witch. Verse 7. David said to Abiathar, the priest... Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this band? Lord, what's your will? Would most guys ask that question? <laughs> Should I go after them? No, I'm going. David's asking. Shall I pursue them? Shall I overtake him? And the Lord answered them, Pursue. And the Lord gave him even more than that. He said, For you will surely overtake and rescue David, the Messiah, becomes the rescuer of the captives. This is bigger than David and Goliath. So David set out with 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, which I, I can show you that picture too, who were with the, the guys who were stayed behind. And David pursued, he and his 400 men, 200 stayed behind, for they were too exhausted. You know, they've been going... They're done. So what is happening here in this situation? Well, I think those three things I said earlier come back pretty strongly. For me, the fact that David first goes to the priest shows me that his initial inclination in the most difficult moment of his entire life is to turn to God. He's turned to God so many times up until now, this is his default. You know, you don't just... Get here if you don't practice. This tells me that David's been having devotions or having quiet times or walking with God his entire life because this habit is built in. This is how he operates. It's fundamental. So when he's hungry, he's tired, he's hurting, he doesn't default to sin or anything else. He defaults to God because this is his regular practice. How do you think that applies to you? You run into a hard time and you haven't been having your devotions, where are you going to turn? Probably to your default. But if you're in the Word on a regular basis, you're pursuing God and seeking after His heart and something bad happens, what do you think you'll do? You'll go to your default. 
David defaults to God and it shows that he truly believes that God is steering the ship. Said in another way, I think this is a brilliant quote, so I just want to read it to you. I'll flash it up there on the board. You can write it down if you like that, or you can also um, download these from the internet as well. It says this, The pain, anguish, and suffering that we so deeply despise and desperately long to resist prove that in the long run, the benevolent tempest that powers us toward the ultimate safety and tranquility of the heavenly harbor. David is really actually believing at this point that God is working all things together for good. He actually believes that. If you didn't, I mean, what would you do? You'd say, okay, guys, kill me. I'm done. I mean, I am done. I've tried. I've prayed. I've done this Jesus thing, but it is not working. My home is burnt. My kids are gone. My life stinks. I quit. And I imagine there's a lot of guys in this room that have probably felt that way before. Ladies as well. David's hitting that low point, and his default is to turn to God. He really actually believes that God is steering the ship. In other words, what I'm saying to you, listen carefully, is that God is at work in all the twists and turns, ups, downs, highs, and lows of your everyday life. Not just the big picture, not just the big moments or the big people or the stuff way out there, but in each and every one of you, in the details of your lives, your surgeries, your jobs, your experiences, your lunch, your kids, your work, everything, God is there. God is at work. God steers the ship, number one. Number two, God will punish the wicked. You know, it's one thing if God's just steering us along and all these people just get away with it and God says, well, go over here and don't worry about it. I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean for that to happen, but <laughs> can you just forget about it? No. God's going to take care of it. He will punish the wicked. He will. God will avenge your wrongs. If people have done you wrong. God will take care of that. If you trust him to do it, he'll do it. David believes that, and you see that fully in 1 Samuel 26. He says, surely the Lord will. What? What's going to happen to Saul? Well, Either God will strike him down, God could kill him today. God does that. You see that happen to people in the Bible. They fall over dead or they get eaten by worms or whatever. Ground swallows them. It happens. God could kill him right now if he wants to. He doesn't need me to throw anything at him. He can kill him. Or maybe he'll die of old age. Or one of his enemies will get him. But at some point, somebody's going to get Saul. Now, I'm good with number one, and I'm good with number three, but number two is where it gets hard, right? In other words, what's he saying? I might have to wait. I might have to wait this guy out for a long time, and that's not exactly what I want to do. I'd rather God just, boop, solve this problem. Lord, can you just take care of it for me? Because I'm tired, I'm ready to be over. Fix it. Bang, please. Drive in, drive out, Done. Nope. He's willing to wait his entire life. Someday Saul will have to die. And then Saul will stand before God. 
Saul will give an account, even if he doesn't in this life. And that's an assurance for Hitler and all these other bad guys who got away with it up until the very end. They will stand before God. No one gets out of that. God will punish the wicked. Guaranteed. I say that with 100% confidence. God will punish the wicked. But not only that, but there's encouragement that God will also reward the righteous. David believes that too. 1 Samuel 26 in the New Living Translation, here's what it says. After he had this one attempt to kill Saul, he says, hey, Saul, I don't even want to steal stuff from you. This could be a nice trophy in my office, but here you go. Here's your spear. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord gives his own reward for doing good. And for being loyal, I refuse to kill you. Even when the Lord gave you over to me. David really believes that God will reward the righteous. So David can look at these tragedies. And he doesn't have to say something stupid. He doesn't have to say, well, you know, maybe my house got burnt down because I'm going to get a bigger house. <laughs> now, he actually does, but that's not why God allows bad things to happen to good people, just to give you a bigger house. That's a dumb way to get it. <laughs> if he wants to, he can just give you a bigger house, right? That's, that's not a solution. Don't say that to anybody else. Don't say it to yourself. What David believes here is that God will reward the righteous. This burning of my home was terrible. There's nothing else to call it. That was horrible. But the Lord will reward the righteous. Don't overlook the evil. He can look it straight in the face and say, this is truly awful. This disease stinks. This experience is from the pit of hell. That person's lying. Whatever. It's true. Saul is trying to kill me. This is not <laughs> what I signed up for. But here it is. And even though it's like this, I know God will reward the righteous. So all I have to do in this situation is just be faithful and believe in him and God will take care of it. When you really believe that, when you believe that God is steering the ship, when you believe that he'll kill the enemy and reward you, you're in a good spot. If you don't believe that, then you're like Saul and you're like, uh-oh, man, I'm in trouble. I better do something because no one's here to help me. So what can I do? I know I'll go manipulate the evil spirits and see if I can get a witch. Or maybe I'll go over here and try this. And when you're panicking and when you're anxious, you're this close to making some really bad decisions. And for Saul, it cost him his life. What will it cost you? Young lady, you want to be accepted and you're looking at this guy and you think he's the ticket? Ah, uh -uh. be careful. You don't know what that's going to cost. Stop. Trust in the Lord. He will punish the wicked and vindicate the righteous. You don't know what it'll cost, so don't make a decision in and of yourself. Trust in God. Saul, David, dark light. So what happens? Well, the story moves on. And Saul is really in the dark and his life goes down and he is killed and his son's with him. But David, on the other hand, 1 Samuel 18 says, the Lord was with him and he continued to succeed in everything he did. 
David shows us what being a Christian leader is really like. How do you face tragedy? How do you face difficulty? How do you move forward? Here's how David did it. These are lessons from his life, lessons in leadership. All of David's life are basically decisive. They're action-oriented because of his belief in God. He's not, you know, sitting on his hands and knees saying, well, I have faith. He's also aggressively pursuing God. And so it's kind of a strange combination between divine sovereignty and human faith. Faith is what James says, something that works itself out, but God leads. So you ask God, which direction am I going to go? Should I pursue this, Lord? Should I pursue the Amalekites? Lord says, yes, you go after them. And don't ask any questions. And that's what David does. He's decisive, he's confident, he's gracious, he's resolute. His steps are bold, he does it without hesitation because he readily accepts the divine word of assurance, the word of God. So in times of great crisis, David seeks God's word. Having found it, he never looks back. This text portrays David then as the great leader whose strength arises not from his own greatness, but instead from this deep reservoir of personal faith and conviction. That's what you need. A deep reservoir of personal faith and conviction that Yahweh will win your victories for you. This is the story of David's life. David was greatly distressed, but 1 Samuel 36 says he strengthened himself in the Lord. That's David. Fast forwarding then, this is what happens. He pursues the Amalekites, 1 Samuel chapter 30. He, uh, I'm going to speed through this just for time. Verse 18 says, he, after he struck them down, he recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, verse 18. And David rescued his two wives. And look at this. Nothing was missing. Not a single thing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, or spoil or anything. Every single little diamond, every single penny, every single horse, cart, buggy, blanket, whatever, David brought back everything and not only that but here's the really super duper cool part that connects him directly to the messiah david also captured all the flocks and herds of everything the amalekites had and the people drove the livestock before him and they sang out and said this is david's spoil not only is he the rescuer but he's the conquering champion and king who gets everything back that was lost and provides additional benefits along with it. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, hey guys, here's a present. <laughs> I'm rich. Let me give you these gifts from the spoil of the enemies of who? My enemies? The Lord's. I'm following after God. Today, if you're giving gifts, this is what you do. You grab your wallet, and in our house, we go to Walmart. <laughs> but even better is a jewelry store, but we start at Walmart. You go to Walmart, and you go down the toy aisle, and you look at the Nerf guns or Legos or the Army guys or whatever, and they say, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. Okay, wait till your birthday, let's see. I don't know, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and then shows up on birthday, right? Thank you, Grandma. 
And then you give them a gift. But in this day and age, what you actually do, in, in this as in David's time, there's no Walmart, there's no 7-Eleven, and they're not necessarily using you know, American currency as a medium of exchange. <laughs> so what do you do? You either grow it or you kill it or you steal it <laughs> from somebody else. That's what the Amalekites did. That's what the Philistines did. That's what the Amorites did. And that's what the Israelites did too. The difference is God was driving the Israelites to himself and wiping out other deities, which would often be made of gold, silver, whatever. So God says, go kill them all and burn their stuff. And in this case, God gave David permission, unlike Saul, God gives David permission, this is one difference between them, to take the stuff. And so David goes, he destroys them, and comes back with all their stuff. Now he's got all kinds of booty and plunder to hand out to his buddies and make friends with anyone he wants. It's this beautiful picture of not only someone who is a rescuer, but also someone who enriches the people who follow him. This is the direct connection, brothers and sisters, in Christ to the New Testament. Is there anyone else you know who rescues you from darkness when all seemed lost, brings you back to the promised land, and gives gifts to men? I think so. Matthew, who makes a lot of connections to the Messiah, who loves prophecy and looks at end times, shows us this very clearly in chapter 12 of his gospel. He wants the people to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the true son of David. And it's funny because what happens is Jesus is having conflict with these righteous people, these Pharisees, if you will, these righteous people. And they're questioning him about his um, behavior on the Sabbath and what he did and whether it counted as sin or work or rest. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Just a few chapters earlier, David got the bread from the tabernacle, from the priest, and ate on the Sabbath. Jesus is connecting himself with David. Then there's a man with a withered hand and Jesus heals him. And then there's a demon-possessed person. And this is what it says when the demon-possessed person comes forward. A man who was blind and mute was brought to him. Jesus healed him, so the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? Well, uh, the withered hand is fixed. The deaf hear, the mute speak. He claims to be able to do what David did. What else did David do? Well, he killed Goliath, but we're not really after that. We want the rescue part, right? Part where he goes in and plunders the Amalekites and kills the bad guys and takes their stuff and gives me gifts. That's what I want. <laughs> I want a king who's going to make me rich. And they went after it, and the Pharisees heard it and said, Ah, he only does this by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. 
That's how he does it. We got him. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he can blunder his, plunder his house. Satan, go to hell. The strong man is here. He smashed and spoiled and plundered and scattered and destroyed the enemy. He spoiled, Colossians says in the King James Version, the very word itself. It's all about spoil, the rulers and the authorities, and put them to open shame. He triumphed over them, canceling the record of debt that stood against us, freeing us from our slavery, and setting it aside by nailing it to the cross. Therefore, after he plundered the enemy, what did he do? Well, what all conquering kings do. Therefore, Ephesians says, when he ascended as the conquering hero, he led host his booty and plunder and captives and gave gifts to men. Here is your king. God shall arise. His enemies will be scattered. And those who hate him will flee before him. Oh, by the way, this is a psalm of David. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. God will punish the wicked. As wax melts before the fire, so shall the wicked perish before God. But not only does he punish the wicked, but the righteous shall be glad, for they will exalt before God and be jubilant with joy. Do you believe? God is steering the ship. He will punish the wicked. He will reward the righteous. If you really believe, man, that changes things. I don't have to give you six points to a better new. That's enough to rest the rest, last the rest of your life. If you believe that, when bad stuff happens, you can look it square it in the eye and say, okay, sirrah, sirrah. <laughs> that which will be, will be. Lord God, I trust you because you're steering the ship and I know that you'll punish the wicked and reward the righteous so I don't have to freak out or do anything dumb. But instead, I can truly run to Abathar every time. My prophet, my priest, my king, who has conquered the enemy and fills me with all good things. What shall we say then?
God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also give us all good things?